Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Baidu Research. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Borman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, we're going to talk about NIPS and some of the workshops that are going on. Yeah, so the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference, or NIPS, is one of the premier machine learning venues. And it has a couple different components to it, um, if you've never been before. It has the tutorial session, which is usually the first day. That has the main conference session with sort of one big single track and then poster sessions. And then the last two days of, of the conference are dedicated to workshops. Mm. Now, each of these is interesting in its own way, and you can go and see who the great tutorial speakers are this year, and you can uh, go and see all the different accepted papers and so on. But the workshops, I think, are, are really interesting for getting insight into kind of what's on people's mind. You know, often, um, you know, papers are written pretty far in advance, and they're, they're sort of the result of a longer trajectory of work. And so they don't necessarily reflect exactly what's on, on somebody's mind sort of today. Whereas workshops are interesting because at the workshops, you'll see sort of half-baked things or you'll see sort of work that is, um, you know, it's a little bit, yeah, it's just earlier on. And then the workshops themselves are often themed in ways that, that reveal sort of people's thought processes. And it's often really interesting to kind of see what, um, what different people in the community feel like um, represents a sort of coalescing research direction. And so, um, and often this is revealed interestingly in the title. So you can look through the list, and I think what's interesting is to get a sense of what the different themes are in any given any given year. And the it's clear that there's um, every year there's a kind of theme of machine learning for X, where X is some interesting application domain. Here you can immediately see that there's a few workshops about doing machine learning for experimental physics, exp uh, machine learning for neuroimaging, uh, for healthcare, for adaptive user interfaces, and other interesting areas. So there's always a well-represented set of people who care about particular application domains um, and, uh, and their interfaces with, with machine learning. Something I'm seeing here this year is there's a lot of interest in approximate inference, perhaps more than there has been in the past. For example, there's the advances in approximate Bayesian inference, which I think is a workshop sort of focused on innovative new ideas and variational inference and Bayesian models. There's ABC in Montreal, where ABC stands for Approximate Bayesian Computation, which is not the same exactly as Approximate Bayesian Inference. Approximate Bayesian Computation is dealing with big probabilistic models where it's very expensive to evaluate the likelihood. And then we also see there's a workshop on probabilistic integration, uh, integration is one of the things we spend a lot of time doing in, um, in Bayesian computation. So this is kind of a different view on that, trying to take advantage of sort of modern probabilistic numerics to do integration, that being different from these other approaches to sort of uh, Bayesian inference. And so right away, we can see that there's at least five or six workshops that are kind of about variations on doing inference in, in probabilistic models. So clearly people are excited about that this year. So the other theme that you can immediately see, and this is kind of always a persistent theme, is, is thinking about optimization. So there's the optimization for machine learning workshop. Um, there's also this very interesting sort of uh, bounded optimality and meta-reasoning, uh, rational meta-reasoning workshop that I think is sort of, a, uh, at least sort of at first glance, looks like it's thinking about how to incorporate the cost of, uh, sort of the cost of inference and optimization within machine learning. There's um, also a Bayesian optimization workshop uh, thinking about how to do sort of high-level optimization of hard functions, um, as well as a non-convex optimization for machine learning 
workshop, which I think is, is kind of focusing on, on some of the exciting new, for example, tensor decomposition methods for, for doing machine learning. So, you know, there, there are more workshops than any person could expect to attend um, and so many exciting things going on. And I, I've only touched on just a, a few here. And so sorry if I didn't mention yours, but you can definitely see some emerging themes people thinking creatively about different kinds of optimization methods, uh, lots of interest in uh, approximate uh, Bayesian inference in different settings, and exciting different application areas where people are trying to really use these methods to, uh, to make a, different, a difference in different scientific domains. If you're interested in the workshops at NIPS, we'll have a link on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Today's listener question is about number of features. Hello. My name is Alexander. I am a high school student from Bulgaria. Recently, I started studying machine learning and I'm seriously considering pursuing it in college. My question is about using data that has a small number of features to make predictions about data that has a larger number of features. For example, an image recognition system that we train it by giving it a data set with low resolution images and then feeding at high-resolution images and expect to get accurate results, but without tampering with the features of the images themselves, literally having a larger number of features as input. If such a system is possible, maybe by the same logic, we can generalize NP problems, because in NP problems, it's fairly easy to generate data when n is small, but as n gets larger, it gets exponentially more difficult. So is it possible to design a system like that? Thanks for the question, Alexander. You know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to think about here. And, um, and so I think I'll sort of um, maybe map this into a couple of different things. So one of them is, you know, how do we take situations in which we have sort of a, a coarse-grained representation of our data and use that to get better at situations in which we have fine-grained representations of the data? This is something that interests people quite a lot. And in fact, there's been, I, I just mentioned NIPS workshops. A couple of years ago, there was a workshop on, um, on learning from coarse to fine-grained uh, data exactly kind of like this. The question is, how do we share information from the, um, the coarse-grained problem to the fine-grained problem? So you can imagine tackling this in a couple of different ways. One really natural thing is to imagine that uh, what we're going to do is try to find a representation of the coarse grain data that is shared with the representation of the fine grain data. So then what we hope is by having a bunch of low dimensional data, we find a good representation and that that representation sort of warm starts what we need for the harder problem. And so you can, and so if we believe, as you say, for example, in the, um, in the case where we have high and low resolution images, that the representation that underlies these should be fundamentally similar. Um, we might hope to be able to make a lot more progress on the hard problem based on the solution to the easy problem. There's also another twist on this kind of thing, which is the idea of an attention mechanism. So one of the ways you might imagine uh, thinking about this is in human vision, where we have a small region of high resolution, kind of our fovea, right in the middle of our uh, field of view. And then there, we have a, a large sort of peripheral area that's relatively low resolution. And the way that as humans and sort of primates, we wield this fovea is by using our sort of low resolution vision in some way to build maybe a coarse grain model of the world. And then we have some kind of policy for foveating, for moving our eyes to areas 
that are important for gathering information about our environment and using then that high resolution information to sort of build a better model when it's important. The, uh, and so there's been a lot of effort in, um, in machine learning to try to build in attentional models of various kinds where perhaps you have some very high dimensional uh, representation of the data. It could be something like a, you know, it could be something like a big, um, like a big image, but perhaps it's even like a video or maybe it's a large text document or even an environment or something that you can navigate. And the question is, how do you come up with a policy for gathering very kind of weak information at, the, you know, at sort of a course level and then use that to decide what high resolution information you're going to gather? So this is something that gets um, that's getting sort of, no pun intended, more attention in the literature um, as people feel like the, the data are becoming richer and um, and it's and perhaps the sort of scaling properties of our models don't necessarily keep up uh, all the time. And so you'd like to be more intelligent about how to gather the sort of features to actually uh, to actually inspect. Now, then you talked also a little bit about um, how how this might make progress on um, on sort of NP hard problems. And, and I guess I don't quite understand exactly what connection you're drawing here, but we could imagine that um, but there is this area of trying to find sort of approximate solutions to to different kinds of NP problems, uh, or or let's just call them very hard computation problems, since uh, rather than sort of diving into the technical details, where you know you have some um, some situation where um, you know computing a quantity might be arbitrarily hard. One one example that I, I really like is computing the permanent of a matrix, which is which is sharp P. Um, and uh, but there are turn out to be efficient algorithms for approximating that in um, in polynomial time, and um, and there's other kinds of examples like this as well. So for example, and within machine learning, there's um, the uh, you know there's there's k-means clustering where most often you know we use Lloyd's algorithm, this kind of iterative uh, iterative procedure to find the the um, the means and the assignments in k-means. In general, we know that the finding the true solution of k-means is very, very hard. But there are interesting approximation algorithms, in particular, uh, the k-means plus plus algorithm that gives you a randomized solution to k-means that can be proven to sort of be um, be quite close in practical terms to uh, to the global solution of of k-means. So this kind of attack on um, on different kinds of computationally hard problems, I think, is a is a very promising one, and and is something that the um, the sort of theoretical computer science community and its interface with machine learning spends a lot of time thinking about. Um, there's this notion, for example, of uh, fully polynomial time randomized approximation schemes that uh, take advantage of randomness, as does k-means plus uh, plus, and as does this this um, sort of permanent approximation algorithm that I mentioned. Um, you know, they use some kind of notion of randomness to uh, to find a solution and um, and prove that it, with high probability it's going to be it's going to be very close to the or it's going to be close to the true best solution. So I don't necessarily, at least in my mind, I don't view these the the sort of course to fine grained kind of machine learning as being all that related to these algorithms. But the uh, but that's not to say that in the future that we won't find sort of interesting and, and deep connections between them. So thanks for the question. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. Today's guest on Talking Machines is Adam Kalai of Microsoft Research New England. 
When we got a chance to sit down with him, we started with the first question that we always start with. How did you get where you are? Okay. Well, um, I started graduate school at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, which is uh, which was and is a great center of machine learning. Back in the when I was there, back in the late '90s and early 2000s, they they had self-driving cars. They had a lot of cool things. I chose CMU because they have a very nurturing environment where they encourage the students to try working on different things, different areas. And um, it's a great time in graduate school to explore working on different things. And also, once you're a tenured professor, <laughs> I imagine it's also a great time to explore <laughs> working on things. Uh, so that's your, your big opportunity. Um, and so I did that. I, I started working in theoretical computer science, where you prove theorems about alg- you design algorithms and prove theorems about their analysis um, and their running times. Um, and then I moved. I tried. I worked in a virtual reality lab. Okay, <laughs> where you wear these... It's a huge jump. Yeah, you wear these head-mounted displays and you see things in three dimensions. Um, but actually, I found that that didn't come as easily to me as it did to some other people or as easily as proving theorems did. So I actually, I was nervous and I went back to proving theorems, which I, which I loved. It was really fun analyzing algorithms and you could prove theorems about machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then I actually tried again a second time. I tried working on 3D displays that you could look at without glasses. Kind of kind of random things. I bopped around a lot in graduate school, but ultimately I, I settled back into um, theoretical machine learning. Um, but uh, so I spent maybe 10 years working in that. And then um, I just, at some point I said, screw it. And <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, I'm gonna go try working on something different. And around the same time, actually, uh, something came up called crowdsourcing, which you've all heard about. Anyone who travels actually is seeing the world changing with Uber and you know the sharing economy. You're taking Uber instead of taxi, or you're staring at, staying in an Airbnb instead of a hotel. And so crowdsourcing is having a huge impact on machine learning as well, or has a potentially huge impact. Um, both, well, largely right now people are using it to label data. Well, tell us how crowdsourcing works. Crowdsourcing, you can in crowdsourcing you can appeal to a large group of people. You can put out a call and say, hey, can anyone help me with this? It can be paid can be in the form of a game um, in a number of ways. But one of the most popular platforms now is something called Mechanical Turk, which Amazon runs. And, and you can very quickly pay people to do any kind of online task that you want. There's analogs in the real world where you can hire people to do things in the real world. But on Mechanical Turk, you can hire them to do anything. And they're typically at a desktop behind a browser, anything they can do that way. Um, so it's made labeling data and running experiments very, very efficient. I mean, what kind of experiments? Um, you can run psychology experiments. So a lot of scientists, a lot of academia has been trying to show that you can reproduce classical studies that, that, that were done in the lab with graduate students, say, uh, on, online with crowdsourcing uh, on these platforms. And they've been largely successful if, if you know how to, to run the experiments properly. So, so like what, what kind of, um, of experiments might you oh, ask a grad good, student to do? Good. So, I mean, as I mentioned, typically, well, a classic example would be, you know, here's an image, label it. <laughs> so a lot of people have images. That like they label want. it with, a, with an with object. Words, okay. With words. What's in the image? There's a man, there's a bike, things like that. For computer vision research, that's very useful. Um, and that's sort of one of the early examples. But then um, people do it for, use it for psychology experiments to understand how people think, things like that. Or you might just have data and you say, yeah, draw a box around the faces. If you're doing computer vision, again, draw a box around the faces, annotate these videos, um, things like that. I'm interested. I think that crowdsourcing can be used to do much more. So I think you can use crowdsourcing to really understand, uh, get a better representation of the data. So 
the, a secret of machine, machine learning is that the representation, the way you represent your data is crucial, and that can have a bigger effect than the specific choice of the algorithm. Uh, and humans have a certain representation of the data in their head, which often is better or different than the machines. So if we can use crowdsourcing to get a handle on that representation, then we can design better algorithms. And we can design algorithms that are more useful to people because the way they interact, if they're trying to search a store for a product or get a recommendation for something, the way they understand that space of products is very important if you want to give them a good recommendation. So, you know, I think of crowdsourcing, particularly through something like Mechanical Turk, as, as being, um, well, essentially what you do is create a very kind of simple choice for the users to make. You essentially make like a web page where they maybe make a binary decision, mm -hmm. you know, which one of these images is a cat. Right. Or, uh, you know, which one of these looks better or like rank these things from one to ten or so on. Like very simple kind of choices that don't depend on any particular domain knowledge. Right. And then you pay them kind of five right. cents to make that choice and hopefully sift through the people who are who are just doing a bad job while they're watching TV or whatever. Right. So can you so what you've said here is really interesting, which is extracting much more sophisticated knowledge from them. Right. Can you talk about how you can map that into into a problem that like a mechanical Turker can do? Sure. Um, so there's multiple ways to do that. One way is to ask them to do this simple kind of binary task and then use statistics uh, <laughs> to find the interesting uh, representation behind the scenes. And the other way is to give them, to ask them uh, more interesting questions. So for example, let me give you an example. So um, if you want to represent data, there's multiple ways to represent it. One way is to embed it in space, so a Euclidean embedding. Um, an easy way to think about that is say you had a bunch of images of faces, you could imagine laying them out on a piece of paper in two dimensions, right? Um, and you could put maybe the men on the left and the women on the right and separate it by race vertically. If you had a third dimension, you could use that for hair length uh, and so on. And computers aren't limited to just three dimensions. So you could, of course, represent it in high dimensions. So how do you get that representation from people? And the, the goal, by the way, with these representations is, is so that nearby points are similar. So there might be other things like a smirk or a certain facial expression which makes uh, two, two faces similar, um, which wouldn't be a special dimension, but you would want nearby faces, you would want two people with similar expressions to maybe be close in, in Euclidean space. Um, so how do you get that from the crowd, right? So if you're in a domain where you don't really need a special expertise like faces or annotating images, um, you can just take people who are watching TV, it's fine. <laughs> and, and, and you show, so what we did in the first experiment is we showed them three images. On top we'd have image A, on the bottom we'd have X and Y. And we'd say which of X or Y is more similar to A? And it's just a binary choice. They have to answer one of those, even if they don't have a strong opinion. And we wanted their gut reaction, it worked great. They, a person could go through hundreds of images like that in minutes. We could get many different people's opinions, which which actually turns out to be very valuable, even though you'd think it'd be confusing to have different people with different opinions that can actually give you better representation. Um, so using that, when you get these, well, there's a few questions here. One of the questions is, uh, how do you choose which questions to ask? And so our system uh, uses active learning to intelligently select which questions to ask. And by doing that, we can save a lot of humor, human effort. So, I mean, <clears throat> so can you talk a little bit more about um, what things you tend to discover? So the idea, so what does it mean to be good at this problem such that you could use active learning? 
Right. So the, a good embedding is one which captures the human representation <laughs> accurately. And uh, <clears throat> you also want to get a good embedding by asking few questions because people have to put in the effort and you have to pay dollars uh, in order to get this good embedding. So. Uh, um, essentially, you would like to be able to predict, uh, ultimately, if you had a really good understanding of the space, you would be able to answer this question of, for any three images, which, which of two are sim more similar to the first. Um, and you would like to get that understanding by asking as few questions as possible. So given, given a bunch of uh, representation, given a bunch of answers to these questions, the way uh, to, to transform this into an embedding is called multidimensional scaling. So that's a classic problem where you're given a bunch of judgments from humans and you want to embed points in space. And we developed some algorithms for that that are suited for this kind of very noisy um, crowdsourcing environment. And then, as I said, we, we had an intelligent algorithm for choosing among these possible questions. If there's an object, there's and choose three uh, possible choices. There's a lot of choices you could make. And so we have an intelligent algorithm for doing that. I, I won't go into the details of it, but um, for example, with faces, you do get kind of, you, you do get what you expect where you sort of have men on the right and women on the left or, or in, you know, divided by some line. Um, another example of what we did is a fun data set is we, we didn't expect it to work on this data set, but we actually uh, gave people the letters of the alphabet, A through Z, Okay, we ask them, lowercase, you know, lowercase letters, is, is lowercase c more like lowercase e or lowercase t? What a weird question. Do you think you'll get any useful, you know, answers from that kind of thing? And so we didn't know, but uh, it turned out that our representation was actually quite good. So some people would answer that question by saying, well, c is more like e because they're both short letters, <laughs> or they're both close to get each other in the alphabet. And other people would say, oh, c is more like t because they're both consonants. Uh, so you'd have a, all these different answers. They weren't telling us why, but we, we could ask them afterwards what, what they were thinking. And then um, in the embedding, you could actually see that there was a separation between the, these uh, different features. So there was a, there was a line separating, or in high dimensions, a hyperplane separating the vowels from the consonants, or a, a direction in which the letters were essentially ordered almost alphabetically, and things like that. So we knew that our experiments were working. And we built a, a fun little prototype, which we could use to help people find somebody if you remember their face, but not their name. So we took, I think, a thousand faces of people uh, in our company, and, and we organized them in a little grid. And so you, you would look at nine faces and say, OK, it's most like this person, and so on. And you would keep clicking and zooming in, and you would eventually find the person you wanted, if, even if you didn't remember their name. One of the things that seems like it would be challenging here is that you actually don't know the similarities. All you get is a sort of a relative similarity judgment. How do you turn that into something that can be used in a classical algorithm like multidimensional scaling? Right. So the, uh, your goal is to find an embedding so that the, uh, if, you, if you were looking for a, uh, if you're trying to predict the answers that you've observed on the data, uh, you would be accurate. So that uh, given, uh, three points, as I said, A, X, and Y, uh, if, if someone said X is more like A than Y is, you would hope that the distance between X and A is, is smaller than the distance between Y and A. Of course, since people are answering probabilistically, um, you actually want a probabilistic model of this. But in general, you're looking, you're trying to fit the data to that. Now, that's a highly non-convex problem. But you can still prove that certain algorithms will converge to the correct representation, even if 
uh, even though it's a non-convex problem, assuming that the data is actually, assuming that people are answering the question according to some kind of probabilistic model of points embedded in space. Now, um, a couple of episodes ago, we talked a little bit about active learning at kind of a high level. Right. Now, in this case, you could imagine that, for example, you put um, images in front of a user about which you're most uncertain about their judgment, exactly. for example. Is that the kind of way that you do the active learning? Yeah, exactly. Uh, let me give maybe a different example, which is related, and it'll make it more clear what what's going on. So um, another representation besides this Euclidean embedding is a standard featural representation where you just have a bunch of features for the data. So if it's faces, we, for some types of objects like faces, we actually have great uh, words in English to describe them, right? We have smiling, we have male, female, you know, eye color. We have words for smirk and we have words for dimples. We have everything. So faces are, uh, are, are very amenable to a featural representation, something like maybe couches or <laughs> sunglasses. There's something that, that would, fonts would be hard to describe with features, and so those would be great for uh, people to embed that way. But for faces, we just, for, for da other data sets, what we do is we just put um, three, again, we do three triples, and we can prove mathematically why you want to put triples, but we put three of them in front of someone, and we say, what do two of them have in common? Give us a word that is common to two of them and not the third. And you can kind of prove, actually, it's, 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 it's like these kindergarten questions. Why do you ask what's common to two of them and not, that not uh, different from the third, as opposed to asking what does one of them have that's different from the other two. So it's kind of fun to relate this to something that, that you learn in kindergarten. Um, but anyway, there, for example, that there becomes very clear. So if you ask, if you give somebody three faces, um, most of the time they'll say, oh, two of them are a man and one is a woman, or two are a woman and one is a man, because if you if you have a balanced data set, then three quarters of the time it turns out that you'll have a mix of men and women. So uh, active learning, what we do is we, we ask somebody, we get this feature, let's say male, we label our data according to that. So we use the crowd, actually, we just show them all the images. They're very quick at clicking on images. <laughs> uh, and, then we, and then we can refrain from asking questions that we already know the answer to. So that enables us to, instead of getting three quarters of the time, the same answer, male, female, male, female, um, you get new features, richer features, and more subtle features um, with many fewer questions. So you can prove theoretically that you have an exponential advantage, that you can learn the representation using many fewer questions. And in practice, it also happens that you can, you can learn this representation with fewer questions. A classic example of this kind of thing, do you remember the ESP game from Louis yes. Van Aan? Uh, so this is a game where uh, you're trying to gather labels about images in a not so dissimilar way. Uh, and the game is played by two people are presented an image, and the objective is to assert words that are present in the image and to try to say the same thing, even though there's no other way of communicating. And so you go to this website, and you're paired with someone randomly out on the internet, and you're trying to you're trying to uh, describe the image using words in a way that um, that someone else might as well. And the the trick to avoid this this issue that you're describing is is that you're presented with a blacklist over time of words that have previously been used to describe the image. And so if it's a picture, um, you know, if it's if it's a picture of a man, then perhaps man would be one of the first things people would say, and then that would get blacklisted, and you'd have to sort of go deeper into this visual right. representation. Right. So um, we, we had a fun example related to that. Um, I love the ESP game work, by the way. It's really fun. Um, what we did is we took a data set of sign language signs. So a, a man uh, was signing all the signs in American Sign Language. He was more or less where it, it was a data set of video snips, 
and he was more or less wearing the same clothes in every snip. And so image by one image at a time, we did something very much like the ESP game where we got a bunch of labels for each image, okay? And you could ask them to give more and more labels. And they would always, we, we took 10 images and we asked, we got essentially labels for all 10 of them from different people. And the labels were always, oh, it's a man, he has a beard, he's bald, he's wearing jeans. <laughs> He's signing, he's doing gesturing with his hands, he's doing something, he looks like Richard Lennon, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So anyway, he looks, you know, and so you have all of these labels, and it turned out that all the labels we got applied equally well to all the images in the data set. So they weren't distinguishing images. So the, the interesting thing is that when you want to understand a data set as a whole, the relevant features are different than when you want to understand each image. Do you see what I mean? So the image labeling strategy of the ESP game or crowdsourcing in general is, is different when you want to understand the data set, and that's why these comparisons are very useful. So how far can we take crowdsourcing in, uh, in driving these kinds of representations? I mean, here when we're, just for everyone's sake, here when we're saying representations, we're talking about taking data and turning that into a vector of numbers, where the vector of numbers has some geometry that we can use to drive other machine learning type algorithms. And there's been a tremendous amount of success with sort of um, identifying, you know, building representations for artifacts that are highly visual, that people can understand very quickly using the sort of the tremendous amount of brain that's dedicated to vision. Mm -hmm. But how far can we go? I mean, can we do better natural language processing? Can we uh, look at, high, at more structured kinds of data? Can we, is there any hope of, of um, you know, using, uh, of, of dealing with highly structured data that requires some kind of um, domain expertise? I mean, what's your, what's your vision oh, yeah. for where to go with crowdsourcing? That, those are great questions. Uh, so some of the ideas are to use uh, non-experts to see if they can still do expert tasks, like diagnosing medical images. Um, so that's a big open question, I think, in crowdsourcing, whether you can do that. Um, people do very clever uh, things with structures, as you're describing. So when humans are experts at vision, they can not only tell you what's in an image, but they can draw boxes around it. Um, in one project, uh, I forget exactly who did it, but what they did is they took pairs of images and they would have people match points. So if they were both churches, they would draw a line between the, uh, connecting the steeples of the two churches or crosses or, or something like that. And um, that can give the computer a very interesting representation because there's many different types of churches and there's many different points on them so without even naming them you can get into the fine-grained structure present in an image I believe you could do the same uh, with text as well I don't see any reason uh, why you couldn't and I think that's a, a neat direction for crowdsourcing so one of the uh, I mean so Adam you have a tremendous range of interests uh, I mean you've already hinted at just a few of these I have the sense that that you've also thought a little bit about how to. Um, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm totally wrong here, but I feel like you've at least dabbled in sort of some of the econ CS type stuff that that thinks about maybe like that would you would imagine would relate to how do we incentivize people in crowdsourcing situations to give us the right answer? How do we validate? Um, yes, these there's kinds of a, there's a lot of work on that, and the ESP game is a fun one where they where they took what normally you pay people to do and they just made it actually fun for people to do. Um, a lot of work in crowdsourcing is on quality control, so it's more about uh, they do the work and you have to filter out people who are either not qualified to do it or maybe they're watching TV and answering randomly or maybe we definitely have run into people writing bots 
Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's a, the, I've more worked on this from the practical side of how do you incentivize people to do it in a way that um, is accept socially acceptable. So it turns out that uh, you can offer them prizes. You can say whoever does the best work will get paid. Um, but people don't like that because they feel many people are then working and they're not getting paid anything and they get upset. So there's a lot of, so there's the incentive structures that people seem to like, especially for these subjective tasks, which I do a lot, um, are, are ones where you say, okay, I will pay you a certain amount and then I will give you a bonus for doing more work. And typically we also limit the amount of work that any one person can do because people actually write programs to do if you, if you put out a, a large volume of work, people, and it's subjective, like who's more beautiful? I mean, we ask questions like that. <laughs> and they know they can answer however they want. Uh, so we actually you know, just limit the amount that any one person can do so that hopefully they won't write programs. So it's kind of a, a practical thing. But to also to answer your question about the limits of crowdsourcing, um, we've had people do very interesting things like they can do the entire machine learning pipeline. So in machine learning, there's not just the representation, right? There, there's What else is there besides representation what would you say what are the other steps of machine learning right there's question. there's modeling regularization right. sort of choosing your inductive bias right. optimization or inference exactly there's so the, those we all have algorithms for that we already those were experts and what's the first step in a machine learning problem it's framing the problem right exactly and choosing what problem you want to yeah. solve so we said uh, can we get the crowd to help us choose a machine learning problem okay and ask a question all right and then get the data and then label the data, you know, choose the representation, and then we can run one of our many off, wonderful off-the-shelf classifiers. So that was a challenge. So just to understand what kind of things people can do. So we started by saying, okay, can you give us a good machine learning problem? Oh, here's some examples of binary classification. And people had no idea what we were asking. <laughs> they, it just didn't make any sense to them, and we gave them examples. It didn't make any sense. Then we said, okay, let's play a game. Okay, let's invent a game guess blank from a picture of blank. And they really liked that, and they were very creative, and so they came up with ideas like, guess what color my eyes are from a picture of me with my eyes closed. Or guess whether I'm a man or a woman from a picture of my handwriting. Okay, and a lot of people suggested that, so then we were able to just ask them to give us data. So they just wrote on a piece of paper that, you know, uh, the quick brown funks jumped over lazy dog. And then uh, we had them take a picture of it with their camera, with their cell phone camera, email it to us, tell us whether they're man or woman. So very quickly we had a problem, we had data, we had them give us a representation as we just discussed, and then we could run a machine learning algorithm. So the crowd can really do the whole machine learning loop and we don't really need machine learning researchers anymore. <laughs> That's fantastic. So um, shifting gears just a little bit. So mm -hmm. one of the things that, Adam, you've done that's been a tremendous service to machine learning has been organizing the uh, the New England Machine Learning Day. Right. So the New England Machine Learning Day is an event um, that's held at Microsoft Research New England and uh, brings together new, uh, machine learning researchers in the Boston area um, all the way up to sort of Dartmouth and down to uh, and down to Connecticut and Rhode Island, and it's kind of this this really nice event that gets together uh, people who are sort of you know in the area and interested in these topics, both in academia and industry, and sort of people who are generally interested. It's a lot of work for you to put this together, uh, but it's a wonderful event, and so thanks for doing that. A few years ago at the New England Machine Learning Day, you gave a talk, um, and I'm trying to reconstruct this talk in my head, and so I'm hoping you'll you'll sort of like elaborate on it. But you talked about the shapes 
of words. Right. <laughs> well, first of all, Ryan's being modest. He's helped me organize this event over the last few years, uh, which has been a great success. Only in the tiniest <laughs> amount. But. Uh, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's great. We've had great talks from numerous academics around, and the students come, and they give wonderful poster presentations, and it's really a easy way for everyone to get together without having to fly to some conference. And for a lot of the students, it could be their first opportunity to, to see these kind of lectures, so they're really enjoying it. Um, yeah, I did give a talk. I had a crazy idea, um, which I'm still working on. Actually, I, 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 the listeners, of course, can't see this, but I, my smartwatch that I'm wearing right now has a, has a, a font that you guys won't be able to read at all. So if I get a text message, wow. here, you can't read that, and I can read it. But you're certainly um, going to give us a photo of it that we can post on the website. <laughs> <Sure>. uh, <laughs> we have a paper on that, uh, which is, uh, so we actually use crowdsourcing to try to design different letters for the for English, let's say, for the 26 letters of English, you know, they're thousands of years old, the Latin alphabet, and there's no reason that it's optimal for displaying on a smartwatch. Um, so we did use crowdsourcing to help design uh, possibly better letters that might be more readable. These letters that are on my watch are optimized so that I can read them without reading glasses. <laughs> um, and uh, you could consider different criteria, and we, we compared how easy they are to learn. So we actually had people in crowdsourcing learning these new uh, systems and how easily they could read them uh, at various degrees of blur. So that's been, uh, that's been a lot of fun, yeah. Uh, one of the things I'll, I'll mention, by the way, that uh, it's a small thing, but one of the things that, that I've worked on that's related uh, only because in organizing this event, there's a lot of um, boring kind of administrative work. And one of the things I've worked on um, in machine learning is programming by example. So when you kind of have to do an organizational task, anyone who has to do this knows that there's a lot of kind of manipulating of lists of names and things like that. And so um, one of the things I'm interested in is, is programming by example where you can get a computer to do something by giving examples rather than programming. So if you have a list of names and you want to sort them by last name, or if you want to count how many times a certain name appears in a list or various things, um, we have these systems for manipulating text by example. Um, and th those systems are, are using machine learning typically and uh, artificial intelligence. So how do these things work? So what's a, what's a use case of this like in practice? So is maybe you know you're uh, editing a spreadsheet in Excel, for example. Right. So there is a, so actually Excel has a feature like that built in already, um, and it, people really like it. But there's a but any kind of text processing that that's what our system was designed for is, is large quantities of uh, unstructured text or semi-structured text that you want to manipulate by example. You might have a bunch of names and addresses in a file, or you might have a log file. Um, more generally, I'm, I'm very interested in the question of how computers can synthesize programs. So most of what happens in machine learning is, you know, um, learning continuous functions, optimizing functions. But here, when you want to learn a program, that's a very difficult space to search through, right? How do you represent a program? <laughs> that, that's very challenging. And so it's a totally different kind of search problem, which is what, uh, what one of the challenges that I really enjoyed. And there's not very much work in that area, but I do think that, that once computers can generate programs uh, and they can possibly sort of output things, they, they can, you know, it's, it's a small step in the progress towards the self-improving algorithms where computers can get smarter and take over the world. So, I mean, there is this area of program induction, right, that is, right. That is trying to tackle this, and there's been a little bit of work actually by 
by Josh Tenenbaum and, and yeah. some of his students, and, and I, I was actually involved in some of this too. What I think makes program induction hard is coming up with, a, um, with an inductive bias that makes sense for programs. That is to say, what makes one program more sort of parsimonious, uh, given that they can both do the same thing maybe, or both of them are sort of reasonable explanations of a map between, you know, from input to output, or maybe just producing an output. How do you um, make it clear what which one of these is kind of simpler and and more interesting? I th- so do you yeah. have any thoughts on, on this? Yeah, this so, that, so there's, I think there's really two sides to the program generation problem. So if I have if I have uh, data, let's say let's just be concrete, right? I have a list of names. I have Adam Kalai, uh, Catherine Gorman, Ryan Adams. That's the input. That's X. The output is Y. It's sorted by last name. So it's Ryan Adams, Catherine Gorman, Adam Kalai. Um, so uh, now we're looking for a function that maps that input to the output. One of them is sort by the second word, uh, sort each line you know by the second word. One of them is just output the fixed string y, no matter what the input is. And that's not probably not what we were looking for. If we give other names, we don't want the same output. So th- the problem of ranking functions, if you have a number of functions, right, and you're trying to s- a number of programs described somehow, and we haven't gotten into the representation, but if you have them and you want to rank them, that's an interesting problem. That, that's, that falls a little bit more classically into the structured prediction domain. So you can put weights on functions, and then you try to learn um, you know, which, which functions are more likely than others. Um, another and perhaps more challenging part is finding the program in the first place. So if the program is pretty complicated, if you're counting things, you're going to involve many steps. Um, so finding, I found that finding the program in the first place is even more challenging than ranking them. And so um, that's an exponential search problem because you, there's a lot of programs out there. Um, on the other hand, computers are very fast, and since there hasn't been a ton of work on that, there's actually a lot of opportunity to improve it. So I think starting with these simple problems, fairly simple problems, where you feel like, gee, a computer really should be able to do this for me. In today's day and age, I shouldn't have to write a program to do that. The computer should understand what I want. And they can almost do it by brute force search. We can really expand the horizon of what we're able to do um, using computers by, um, by doing a smarter search. So for example, in the sorting one, there's many functions out there. Let's say you already know that sorting is a possibility, but there's other things you could do with text, right? So there's a clue here that, that one might be a sort of the other, is that if you look at the letters in the input and the output, they're a permutation of one another. So this number of A's and B's and C's in both X and Y in the example I gave are the same. So you know that the input is an out, the output is a permutation of the input. Maybe sorting is more useful. So as you do your search, you might be biased towards including the sorting function. And uh, if you were manipulating dates and you had days of the week in the input and output, that would be a suggestion that maybe you should use some kind of date functions. So you can do a more intelligent search in that, in, in, uh, in our work that seemed to really make the difference between, expand, sorry, that seemed to expand largely the set of functions you could search through in a reasonable amount of time. Sort of giving it hints about what kinds of functions might, might exist. Right. Because this gets at something that I think in, in its full generality I found to be very frustrating about thinking about program induction, which is relative to continuous problems, you don't really get partial credit, mm-hmm. right? So if you're close to, an, you know, if a human would think that what you produced was close to the right answer, but your loss function somehow doesn't know about that, 
then um, you know then you can um, you know then it's very hard to navigate the space. So let me give an example. So uh, in the sorting case, mm-hmm. imagine that we had a hundred names instead right. of um, instead of one name, or instead of three names, and the um, and we're going to be scored, for example, based on on whether or not we got the right position for every name. And we accidentally, when we learned our program, took the person who should be last and put them first. Right. And so now this this <clears throat> list, by our sort of you know human judgment, is almost sorted. It's like very close to the right answer. But if we, for example, scored it according to whether or not I got the right position for each name, then it's completely wrong. Every single name is wrong because there's this one thing that appeared at the top and shifted everyone else down. Right. So it sounds like what you're doing is is a really interesting sort of angle on that because you're basically saying, well, I know about the concept of permutations and now I can reason about what it means for a permutation to be similar in which that's kind of, you know, very close to the right permutation. I, I, I completely agree that it's a very hard problem because you don't have, like you say, partial credit. So if if your program is close, it could give a completely wrong answer. If you take a program, anyone who's ever written a program, or even if you haven't, you can imagine if you take a program and change one function in the program a little bit, the output can change tremendously. So you have to really use some uh, higher level thinking to solve it, and it's very different than the kind of convex optimization problems that we typically face. Do you feel like there's any hope of a kind of a unifying principle here where we say there's certain classes of functions that you can represent, things like dates and and um, names and ordering? You know, we can build in a lot of domain knowledge, but you know, the, the hope is to get good at this sort of in general, but suddenly it feels like it sort of feels impossible. Is there an intermediate sort of middle ground? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I, I think that I, what we were playing with was something a little more intelligent than brute force search. Uh, and I think a lot, actually thinking about how we as humans solve problems is very helpful. So we do solve these problems. Um, we collected our data from help forums online where people ask programmers, how do I do this? Uh, they might be programmers actually asking one another, and they always gave examples. They insisted on examples. So here's, an, here's my question, give me an example, and then I would give an example, and then somebody would send back, here's a program. And you know, when we think about how does a person look at these lists and understand those things, we do solve that problem in some way. It's not a convex optimization, and I think we are using these kind of clues to do a more intelligent search, but it's, it's quite a complicated search problem because there, we, do, we must have some internal notion of par- partial progress, which uh, I don't think we've gotten got a, a handle on, but I think it's an exciting area because it's an interesting problem and it's already almost useful in, in its own right, so that's when you can really make progress in the problem. Adam Kalai of Microsoft Research New England. Really interesting stuff. I'm going to go sign up for a Mechanical Turk account right now. Every time I talk to Adam, I feel like he just has incredibly insightful and creative things to say. And I really love, I love his work. I love the breadth of it and, and the, just the sort of the, the energy that he, he brings to everything he does. He's such a pleasure. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Baidu Research. Talking Machines is an original production of Tote Bag Productions. Our theme music was composed by John Parati. Our logo was designed by Alex Wilchko and arranged by Mike Rohr. Want to get in touch with us? TheTalkingMachines.com or TheTalkingMachines at gmail.com. Interested in a job you've heard about on our show? Email us at jobs at TheTalkingMachines.com. <laughs>